Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, and altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman. Kelsey, how's it going? It's going well. I have a question for you, first off. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you mentioned in our last episode, to me before, that you guys have uh, given to Haiti, right? Right. Well, what, what inspired that? Like, what? How did you that even get on your radar? Is something that you wanted to give to, and, and what exactly did you give to? Yeah. Um, well, that you know, this this all stems from my uh, from my loving wife, who is um, a very generous person. But she uh, she was involved with a uh, trip through a local church, local Catholic church, to Haiti. Um, and went there primarily from the uh, standpoint of helping to build infrastructure and um, help with housing, was this and post, education. Uh, earthquake pre. It was pre hurricane and earthquake. Yes. Was earthquake or hurricane? I think it was both. Or, <laughs> I think both hit over okay. time, of course. Um, but yeah, she was down there helping with the school and with the people that go to that school, all connected to the church there. Well, um, through that process, she met a lot of people, of course, right got the humanity side of, of the, the country that you hear about. Uh, so when she got back, she took an idea that she had um, around um, a wine-based fundraiser, <laughs> which is always good to attract people, um, where you would uh, bring wine and people would try wine. You'd auction that off and have a silent auction and other things. And, and over a two to three year period, she held, held those uh, fundraisers and, and contributed some sizable amounts, good amounts to uh, the people of Haiti and the, the specific village city that she worked in um so that really opened her eyes to what was going on there we still have friends that travel there regularly um including uh, one woman who lives here in town that goes by herself um and travels to that village by herself in that very dangerous place um yearly every other year or something like that like a very dangerous place. Like, are you, like a certain area that she goes? The area she reaches is not as dangerous, but of course she's flying into some of the bigger cities. Yeah. And, um, and as a woman by herself, it's yeah. not uh, the safest place mm-hmm. to, to be. Um, but she continues to do it as for years. And she has friends and people she would call family that live yeah. there. Right. So through that process, we've come in contact with a family and um, began to start sending money down there. So, the challenge I referred to was um, um, the family we knew, um, and I think it may have been, now that I'm recreating my memory here, post-hurricane, it blew part of their house apart. And so we'd always been looking to build houses and to create um, sustainable buildings for people. And um, it blew part of their roof away. Well, we were desperate to get money there so that we could repair and fix that house. That's a much harder thing to do than you might think. so we found someone who we'd been connected to that did work down there. We provided money to this individual to, to do that work. Um, didn't get updates for months and months and finally found out that that money was used for something else. And not something that, in my opinion, was as urgent a yeah. need than water coming in when it rained mm-hmm. uh, onto a child's bed, yeah. which seemed <laughs> pretty significant, still does. Yeah. He's bigger now, and I'm sure that they've made their way through that. Um, but the money we spent ultimately went to a bridge, mm. which mm. I'm sure that there was help for that, but that's not what that was intended to. And back to what you've referenced before, the folks that were involved um, and that we talked to and we wrote letters to saying that's what's going to happen, mm. feel disappointed that we failed mm. in that process. And Karen and I struggled mm. with that. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting though, right? Because who are we to say what they need? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and where am I giving it right about give directly? which is an organization just gives money to, to um, people who live in poverty in a selected community. And, and just they give money to everyone in a community regardless of, of wealth, but most of the people are like below the poverty level. Yeah. And interestingly enough, uh, most of them, the money goes towards like putting on a new roof. Yeah. You know, and yeah. uh, actually studies have been done where they've shown that um, consumption of like alcohol, money spent on alcohol, and other things actually goes down, right? That's like the argument, like, well, we give people free money, that's the, poor people money, they'll just That is the on. stereotypical argument. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Well, and, and I personally find that if I can put money to something specifically, and I know there are organizations 
that are based around the world that are there to help Haiti. Yeah. Uh, we can go search them right now and we'd find them. Yeah. And I could give some amount of money to those organizations and it would probably do some good. But boy, was I motivated to put a roof over that kid's head. Yeah. I, Karen had met him, knew the yeah. family, knew the people around. I'd seen pictures of the house. Mm. I want to cover that kid's bed. I don't want rain to fall. Yeah. And I would have done almost anything yeah. money-wise to get it done. And we tried. But it just shows how hard it is to, to do that. It's, it's, not like, uh, it, it, it's not like going to do that locally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The interesting thing is that sometimes there's infrastructure to make that happen easily. Right now on my phone, I have this app called Wave. And it connects to um, something called Impesa in Kenya, which is a lot of uh, Kenyans bank through their phone. Mm-hmm. And so I can send money directly to right. my friend Rosie or, right. you know, and they can, they'll get it immediately. Yeah. And um, that's changed, right? That's a lot different than it was. And that doesn't exist everywhere. That probably doesn't exist in Haiti. It may not, but well, this whole story goes pre-mobile phones even. So does his family yeah. now have the ability to have a bank account that is protected? Yeah. Now, what, what our friend uh, Pam would do is she would actually carry, this is a little dangerous, yeah. she would carry cash in her suitcase to that village. Wow. Right? It's the only way to get money there before. Yeah. Now, that probably has changed. and Maybe that's... Uh, Maybe that's research we can do and find someone to talk to us yeah. about that later. But. It started with travel, right? It started with Karen going there and meeting right. someone, kind of evaluating her life and seeing how other people live right. as well. I've had, I mean, I've had that same experience. Uh, I've been in villages before. This has happened multiple times where, you know, I go places where it's only like military or missionaries and I show up and it's like, you know, they don't know what to do with me. They think I'm one or the other. They don't know whether to threaten me because I'm military or to like just, you know, they think I'm a missionary of some type. The funny thing is you don't look like either one. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but so I've been taken, they think I'm a doctor. You know, a lot of times people mm-hmm. that look like me in that area, um, maybe I'm not a, maybe I'm a missionary as a doctor or right, you know, sure. I'm, I'm a doctor, right? Uh, and so I've been taken to people's deathbeds before. Like people dying of malaria, like here, help my father. And they just think and just you're going to be able to do something. Yeah, and I'm just like feel completely worthless, and and like this is a feeling I've had like pretty much every time I travel because I'm not someone who can provide that immediate thing that will help them. You know, I think the, the people I've met, most of them, I've never been able to help mm-hmm. in any way. I'm able to share some stories or that maybe long-term will inspire someone to act the way that maybe helps their children or, um, but, but, but you and Joshua both, your travel has not, it's not been comfortable. Yeah. Some of the stories in your books, especially the one with your mom, which I think about my mother in that situation, oh, yeah. but they're not safe situations. Yeah. They're not vacation situations. And, and he talks a little bit about traveling with purpose and traveling out of your comfort zone. Yep. And you've done that. And yeah. Done. yeah. So my mom flew in the day of the, they announced who won the Kenyan election in 2017. And it was like one of the worst days to be in Nairobi of the last decade. Right. It was right. like the city was like shut down. Locked there was down. no one out. And except for me, my mom yeah. driving around in an Uber when all the gas stations are closed at night and the slump, you know, the, there's gunfire going off in the distance, and so that's what Jay is referring to. Um, but yeah, travel has definitely uh, opened my eyes to the opportunities and privileges I have and how we make a difference and inspired me to keep doing this work. And that's the same for our guest today, who's Josh Berman. Uh, Josh is, I met Josh years ago on the internet. We were kind of both along the same travel writing community. And Josh was a, a, a Peace Corps volunteer. Before that, he was a AmeriCorps volunteer. Mm. He's been a firefighter. He teaches Spanish now at K through 12. And someone I've really always admired. He wrote a book called Crocodile Love. And it's about his, uh, I think it's like a 16-month honeymoon with his wife. And they traveled to like, I never brought this up. And I don't bring this up in the interview. But at one point in time in this book, his wife, Sute, um, she's drinking through a straw and there's like a cockroach in it and she spits it out. Like how badass is that? Right. It's, 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 like it, on your honeymoon. Yeah. On, yeah. On your honeymoon. Like Annie, we probably just got divorced. 
divorce. <laughs> Andy, Andy <laughs> would have been done. She would have been beat me up and we have a divorce <laughs> right there on the spot. We love uh, you, Andy. Yeah. So uh, Josh, his official bio is he's a freelance writer, uh, K through 12 Spanish teacher, television production fixer. So he's worked with Andrew Zimmer before on mm. the East of Weird Foods. He was in Nicaragua with him. Yeah. Um, He's returned from Peace Corps, trip leader, uh, through Outward Bound. He's a husband and father. Joshua writes a monthly column in the Denver Post and is the author of six books. His travel articles have appeared in the New York Times, Yoga Journal, Delta Sky, Sunset, National Geographic Traveler, among other publications. Joshua's appeared multiple times on the Travel Channel, including as a tour guide for the host of Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern and Nicaragua. His first narrative book was Crocodile Love, Travel Tales from an Extended Honeymoon. It was published in December 2015. His next book, Moon, Colorado, um, just came out pretty recently. So I was really excited to talk to Josh because he made one of the, I feel like one of the biggest giving commitments that anyone that starts to think about these things thinks like, should I have done this or should I do this? And it's to volunteer for the Peace Corps and commit two and a half years of your life. So without further ado, Josh Berman. Hey, Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, Kelsey, thanks for having me. It has been uh, a long time coming. We've known each other for years, but I don't think we've ever talked in person, so, or kind of in person. Which is incredible, or that the paths haven't crossed physically yet, but they've crossed in all kinds of other ways, so. Yeah, you led me all over Nicaragua. I still say that the Moon Nicaragua guidebook that, that you wrote, I think someone else too, yep. um, that was my favorite guidebook. And the reason that I liked it so much was that I felt like I got to know you and then I could, in your taste, and I could kind of um, see where my tastes were with yours and, you know, and kind of make decisions based on that where I think some guidebooks now are you know just years and years of people contributing and like a hundred different people contributing and it just becomes this kind of like no voice or a really opinion at all and it's hard to say what you'll like and what you won't like. Yeah, and that's what we Randy Wood was my co-author on the Moon Nicaragua book and and that really was our intention from the beginning of making it feel like you're you just ran into these guys in a bar in Managua and we're telling you. Um, we're telling you where to go and there's, and there's a tone and there's, there's a voice there and our publisher encouraged that and people really responded to that. So we can crack a few jokes here and there and, um, and really, yeah, kind of travel with, with the reader. So that was, that yeah. was fun. It was fun. I mean, it was, it was a much more polished version of, I don't know if you ever had this before. I had this happen to me in uh, like Bosnia or something. A guy like literally drew a map on the back of a napkin and was like, here's where that guest house is, or here's where you should go hiking. And yep. that's kind of what I felt like was just like some, um, some friends telling me where I should go. So nice. uh, I'm so thankful to have you on. I just got done actually rereading uh, your book, Crocodile Love, poured into it. Cool. And one of the things I was really excited to talk about is just the, the, um, the role travel has played in, in your life and your view as your role as a parent. Uh, when was the first time you kind of really hit the road? My my family traveled a bit. I mean, I grew up in West Virginia and Pittsburgh, and I would I would travel to New York a couple times a year to to visit my grandparents. So that that became pretty normal. When I was fifteen, my family went to Europe on a trip and visited some friends there, and that's when I started to get a flavor for it. And then my first big solo trip, I think, was eighteen. Uh, buddy and I drove from Pittsburgh. Um, cross country and we did a, a huge loop covered way more ground than we should have planned for. And, and, but we hit a bunch of national parks and, and that's kind of, yeah, really what, what set us going. And yeah, I, I kind of planned, um, I mean, I really planned my career out, but the, the travel definitely was the vehicle uh, that, that took me places and taught me things and, and pretty much landed me where I am today as a Spanish teacher in Boulder, you know, because of, of, of the decision, you know, 20 something years ago to join the Peace Corps and go to Nicaragua and get trained. And I just, I just had a feeling that, that getting those skills would lead me on, on a path that, that would, where I wanted to go, especially that, that language skill. Had you been to anywhere like Nicaragua before you joined the Peace Corps? Not, 
Not like that. I no. I had been to, uh, you know, I'd been to Europe twice. I went back to Europe with, as a solo backpacker. I think it, when I was nineteen, um, had done a few camping trips around this country and, and even joined AmeriCorps uh, af- after college. And, and that pl- placed me in an area in Northern California that really was, um, was, was very much like a, a culture, a whole kind of a whole new culture to be in. It was really rural town that I became a part of. So that was, that was a good prelude to Peace Corps, but no, I'd never been to a developing country. Yeah. So what was your job? What was your work at like with AmeriCorps? AmeriCorps, I, because I studied environmental studies in college, AmeriCorps, it was called the Watershed Stewards Program. I think they're celebrating their 25th anniversary uh, this week. They, it was one of the first AmeriCorps groups, and I was assigned to work with the, uh, the, the fishery biologist at a U.S. Forest Service ranger station on the Klamath National Forest in Siskiyou County. California. So I would shadow this fisheries biologist and we, I lived in the forest service barracks and I hung out with firefighters and park rangers and, and wildlife biologists. And that was a big, big eye opener. So yeah, I, I, I got into it working in biology and then thought that I would go into Peace Corps as a forestry agent and even was told that I'd be doing forestry, but landed in Nicaragua to discover that I was part of an environmental education group. So, uh, so I did that. Yeah. So when you get to Nicaragua and, and you, I mean, you've never been to a country like that before. And you're like, I'm, oh, I'm going to live here. Was that, I mean, you, I mean, you had done a lot of, um, you, you did outward bound and stuff, right. And you were like a firefighter. Um, so you had been, a, spent a lot of time on your own different places. Yeah. I did some, yeah. Yeah. I'd done some wilderness travel. Um, was trained as an EMT during that time with AmeriCorps, but this, this was really new. And I mean, but one big difference was you're joining Peace Corps. I, I was, we gathered in Miami with my, with my training group. And then we traveled to Nicaragua together. So we're all looking around at each other and we, you know, they, we got picked up by this yellow school bus at the airport with funky town blasting as they drove us to <laughs> Granada. Literally, literally Funky yeah. Town was last so That year. was like our theme song. And we're looking, you know, we, we all just threw ourselves into this experience. So we had each other at first, you know, during that yeah. intense training period. But then, you know, with Peace Corps 2, you end up, at some point you're just dropped off in your, in your dusty little town and, and you got to figure out your job and kind of sink or swim. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, those, all those kind of like independent – independence building activities definitely built up to that, but there, there was a big unknown and, and that, you know, now two years seems like nothing, but definitely back then I was 23 and that the two years stretched out for, you know, it's, it's farther than we can even conceive. Yeah. Um, was there a, was there any sense of uh, like, what have I got myself into? Was there any like homesickness or um, when you first like settled into that village and like, this is it, this is the next two years of my life. Sure. Yeah. They, I mean, I think the best short nugget description of the Peace Corps is this, we met this elder volunteer when that first week that we arrived and he told us, he was like, the highs are the highest you've ever been in your life. You're, you feel like you're helping people. They're coming to your meetings. You're making connections. You're, you're making, you know, huge strides forward with the language and it's unbelievable. And this is why you came. And then the lows are the lowest you've ever been. You're curled up in your hammock. Uh, you're sick, you're homesick. Nobody came to your meeting because it was drizzling out or, or whatever the reason or everyone's complaint. Nobody cares what you're doing here. And then it's just this wild ride uh, between those for two years. Cause it was, um, yeah, there, there's, you know, there's certain only so much you can prepare for. And then, and then a lot of it is just, is making the best of, of the situation. Uh, you know, we had a, we had also had a major, natural disaster thrown in right in the middle of my service and that so everything shifted from uh long-term development thinking into that that short-term emergency relief and that was a big lesson in that you know that's Mm. one of the biggest rifts or or you know distinctions in in aid that that you make and and we got to see that really really sharp um difference between the two was that like a hurricane is it mitch or hurricane mitch hurricane mitch october 1998 uh i think it was four thousand people died in nicaragua um this hurricane just parked itself right over honduras and just rained and rained 
and it, it caused a lot of destruction. So, you know, we are if that immediate relief part of it with U.S., you know, with helicopters flying relief back and forth and, and emergency emergencies, you know, getting solved and then going into this more short term, but still immediate relief need. Um, so yeah, really intense, but, uh, and you know, they're, they're, they're still feeling it from that, from that hurricane. So what, what was that like your, you know, there in your quarters or apartment or I don't know what, what, what you were saying, but then did you know that this was coming? Did you, did you have any concept of what was about to happen? No, we were in, my group and I were at a language workshop in the kind of south part of the country. So we were out of our sights. Okay. It was raining and raining and raining. And then there was one night, yeah, we saw pretty much every river in the north of the country had come up and, and taken bridges and roads out. And it happened pretty suddenly. Um, but we, for us, it was, and then we were trapped in Managua. Uh, where Peace Corps was trying to account for everybody because we hadn't been evacuated. Some other countries had. So they were just trying to find everybody and we were desperate to get back to our sites. This is their, you know, the moment when they need help the most. Um, And my neighbors were kind of rescuing my stuff out of my house at the the time. And we finally made our way back up uh, and and then, you know, dug in or actually dug out. We actually were literally just shoveling mud um, out for for quite a while. So how Um, did you see that in? How did you see it impact your, your, your community that you were based in? So they, you know, they had some landslides. No one died in my town, but a lot of things were disrupted, you know, and, and uh, you know, all the whole, the whole transport and the whole country was disrupted. So you saw, you know, people who's, a lot of people lost their homes in my town. The homes were just sheared in half. Um, and you saw people caring for each other. You saw, you know, the town you know, open up the rec center as a, as a shelter um, you saw kind of what the needs were, you know, we, when the volunteers, we were stranded in our office in Managua and we just started making sandwiches and bringing them to places and finding out who we can volunteer with and, you know, to, just to lift and, and load supplies yeah. that were going around. So how long had you been there when Hurricane Mitch hit? About nine months. Mm. Uh, so three months training. So I was about six months into my placement in, in my village. Um, and after that, I, I, I ended up writing a small grant, I think it was for $900, um, to help this one particular farmer that I knew, and he lost his entire crop. Everything was buried in silt. He was along this river. It was about a two-hour journey to get to get to his farm. So we, we got a grant, and it was all about um, uh, teaching about soybeans. So there was some, we had some workshops and some education and some soybeans to plant, and and but he also planted some of his old crops, some of his other beans and peppers, uh, you know. But I, it gave me something. So that was that was like the bridge between the the relief and, and the long term. And it was interesting to try to seek those out. And that was money that I raised through something called the Peace Corps Partnership Program, where you can have your friends and family send you money. This was mm-hmm. before um, crowdfunding. Yeah. Um, so Peace Corps helped you kind of facilitate your own little crowdfunding and, and, and that worked out and we were able to buy the supplies that he needed and, and get his, his farm up and, up and running again. So what, what kind of, what were your, what were your goals uh, before Hurricane Mitch and did they end up ch- shifting? Did they end up changing? A little bit. It was more, you know, we got distracted. My, my, I was working with teachers. I was supporting the teachers in my district in La Trinidad Esteli in the North of Nicaragua. And Volunteers before me had had developed these curriculum, um, an environmental and, and very active and dynamic curriculum to that that you could insert into different parts of the Nicaragua um, main school curriculum. So it really made it easy for teachers to do that. They just needed someone to, you know, help facilitate why and why you'd want to do that. You know, but I was in the classroom a little bit. These classrooms of fifty kids. Um, a lot. Most of the teachers were too overwhelmed to even want to work with some some gringo there but i found about four or five young ones who who were into working with me and then we started focusing on them um but yeah that got interrupted by the hurricane but there was still some good work there and i would travel out to their schools and sometimes do a little clown routine and just liven things up and give them some support and so i didn't really i don't think feel like i established any huge contributions to that curriculum but as far as um enacting it out a little bit and help supporting it and, and, and just being there for, you know, showing these teachers that at least 
you know, you, you care a little bit, you know, otherwise they just, they're just overworked and underpaid and, and they're just surviving. Yeah. I could see that after the hurricane too, like having gone through the hurricane, you know, often when we experience things like that, um, like it brings us closer to our, our neighbors. And I, I wonder if there was a level a greater level of acceptance of, of you since you had been through this thing with them. I think so. After that, it was, you know, there's, there's always a little suspicion. What, what's he doing there? You know, the only foreigner in town and there's jokes, uh, you know, about ulterior motives, but, but yeah, I, I think after that people, people could see it was, it was pretty sincere. So when you look back at your time at the Peace Corps, do you feel like uh, you made a difference? That you made an impact? Was it? Uh, were you glad that you dedicated two years of your life to it? Absolutely. Uh, I don't think my. I except I just I don't think the the biggest impact were my projects, um, which, which is weird to say. But I think, you know, for me, I stayed. In, I stayed. I went back to Nicaragua the year after I, I finished my service there, and I wrote with Randy Wood the first comprehensive guidebook. Mm-hmm. Nicaragua and that was all based on our experience there you know because we really we interpreted and explained the all the culture and the food and and the geography um, and at the same time we were rewarding Nicaraguan small businesses by putting them in the book and just if you were if you had a business that was that was viable and and provide a good service you'd go in the book and and I feel like that real we did that for more than 10 years um, and would update the book every couple of years. So I, I felt like that was a pretty concrete contribution that, that really was based on our, on our whole service. And then, but there were also the relationships I created during my time there are still really um, alive today. So the couple, a couple of families in particular that basically adopted me and, and we're still in touch and, and see each other quite a bit. Yeah, I've talked to a few Peace Corps volunteers uh, in the past. And, and when I was in Zambia two years ago, I interviewed a couple and I went to visit them at where they stayed, where they lived and went shopping with them and talked to the people in the communities who kind of had taken them in. And uh, I think there, I forget, there was like three goals that they're supposed to focus on. And one of them was like their project. One of them was just like being there, right? It was just basically being there and interacting with people and kind of being a, a diplomat of sorts. Um, I can't, I can't do you remember what the, you know, the goals? Yeah. Oh yeah. The third goal is, is bringing it back home. And that's, yeah. you know, that's basically what I was talking about like that. What, you know, beyond your service, what, what is that experience going to going to turn into? You know, some people go into politics or come back and get all kinds of graduate degrees based on, on, on the deep dives they took. But yeah, the first goal is, is what can you teach them? The second goal is yeah. kind of what can they teach you and just, and yeah, and being there and being part of it um, yeah. and then taking it home after that. So it seems like those other two goals are really the, set, the second and third goals are really important because sometimes the first goal can be really hard, right? That if you're actually going to go and develop a project that is lasting, that makes an impact. And I've heard people say that they were there for 18 months and then all of a sudden now they've got the connections and now they're working the network and now they feel like they're making strides on that first goal. But the second and third goal are, were happening the, the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I did a lot of writing when I was there and was and created a, a, an email group. You know, it was right at the beginning of email and, and sent reports out. And, um, and, I, and, you know, when nobody in the world was hearing about the hurricane, for instance, and I was the one give, sending these reports out, and it felt like I was a, a, an important link there. Um, and, um, yeah, so that, that definitely... That, that felt worthwhile. So if someone's considering the, the Peace Corps, um, what steps should they take? What's that process look like? And what questions should they be asking themselves? They should, they really look into it and have a, a really good understanding of what the commitment is. And it is, it's two and a half years of your life. Like you, like you said, and it's intense. Um, but it's for me, it changed my life. It altered my career. Um, and in, in ways that I kind of had, like I said, had a hunch that I knew it would. So, you know, and that, and that scares a lot of people away, even though I, you know, there, it shouldn't, but that, that is a, co- a commitment. Um, so really looking into that and understanding that and looking and reading through any of the Peace Corps website and literature, and then seeking out some, some people who have served there and who have served somewhere in the world. And, and granted, you know, knowing that 
your people's Peace Corps experiences between countries can be night and day because, you know, each country has its own program um, and each country has its own socio-political, you know, context. But even within, within the country, within, within a departamento, like Randy, my co-author, and he was in the same Esteli. He was on the other side of the Esteli departamento, like a state. Um, and we, we had completely, completely opposite experiences, you know, as far as how the, what the two years were like for us. So, you know, if you do talk to, to volunteers, you know, get definitely listen to what they say, but know that everyone has really, really different experiences. So talk to mm-hmm. a few and, and do, do some really good research. Um, and then if, if you it, it, and know that it's going to take a while, the process, um, I mean, I, it, who knows what it is now, but it took me about a year uh, to go through the whole application process and get cleared and, and finally accept a, an invitation to Nicaragua. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've really, I mean, you've hit all the, all the service beats, right? I mean, AmeriCorps, Peace Corps on your honeymoon that you write about in your book, that's like 16 months long. Um, like you did a lot of volunteering then as well. Like what, what do you think led to, uh, you get wanting to give back so much? Part of it is, you know, my wife and I, my wife was also in the Peace Corps in West Africa. So when we met, we, we didn't have that shared experience. We had that shared experience, but we didn't know each other's experience. So we wanted something for both of us. And we signed up, you know, through American Jewish world service had, had some really specific matches for us, for our skills. She's in healthcare and, and I'm a writer and work with youth groups and they found us three assignments. And we just knew that if we kind of hung our trip from those established assignments, that it would, it would, it would open doors that we wouldn't otherwise be able to find ourselves, let alone open, you know, so to, to have an assignment, to have a reason to be in this village in India and to have two translators and work counterparts assigned to us who lived with us in a flat in this little village for three months. Um, and, and we had a car and a driver to take us to the different tea plantations or we were doing a survey of the workers and we just, you know, we knew that's not something you could, you could just walk into and do. And so to, to, to link up with an established uh, organization and people, you know, that's, that's one, that's kind of the selfish reason to volunteer, you know, knowing that we're going to have this great adventure. And, oh, by the way, yes, we're, we're there and we're hopefully able to share our skills in a way that, um, yeah. that serve to kind of get an experience like off the, like the trap, the beaten travel path. Like when I first started traveling in like 2001, I was totally like in hostels going to places, the lonely planet or told me to go or where other travelers said to go. I was like more surrounded by travelers than like people who actually like lived in that country. And it was once I started taking on like a quest of some type, right? Like, Oh, meet people who made my clothes or like, I feel like that kind of is what has um, the role like volunteering has played in, in your travels, especially on your, honeymoon yeah yeah a combination of that and the guidebook stuff because once you're getting you know i've written um five guidebooks basically and and when you're in that mode it's hard to really shake that mode when you're traveling and you're 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 looking for the nuts and bolts and what how can my readers um replicate this experience even when i'm when when we're out volunteering and i'm I'm writing about you know what what that experience is so i've yeah i'd say those two paths have are, are kind of the main threads for me yeah, you know, what I really appreciate about your volunteering experience in uh, Crocodile Love was the fact that they did match you up with your skill set, right? And and also you were there for, it wasn't just like a week long. I don't know what the definition of volunteerism is. And some people have you know, negative opinions or positive opinions, but I mean, you, were there for, you were there for three months um, and you could actually get to know people and get in a routine and start making connections. But you were specifically using skills that that uh um that you were bringing with you it wasn't like you were showing up and like uh building a house and you never built a house before yeah it was really targeted and that made that makes a huge difference uh and and we did that again in in sri lanka my wife was able to teach re, um you know sexual reproduction client health classes to this this organization of tea workers and i helped them with their website and then we went to Ghana and we worked at a Planned Parenthood clinic where my wife worked in a medical clinic with the doctors and I worked with their youth organizer. 
Um, and those were, those were two month assignments. And I have to say, yeah, at, so having that, that, you know, that cuts out in Peace Corps, it does. Sometimes it does. You have an assignment, but sometimes you, f- you can't really do your assignment because of whatever reasons in your village and you have to find your own alternative or you have a secondary project that, that, that kind of maybe comes up. Um, but you really have to seek that out. And it could, it, like you said, your friend, like it could take a year and a half um, to suss out exactly how your skills can fit into in, into a community. So doing this, you know, this was through a program that doesn't exist anymore. It was called the Jewish Volunteer Corps, um, where AJWS would, would match us. But that definitely, that that's making the time really efficient. And like you said, you know, just enough, two months is enough time to, to make some connections, get a routine, and, and hopefully contribute and leave something behind. So do you know of any other resources um, that kind of exist like that now that kind of make this, that kind of matchmaking? Like where would you point people now if they wanted to have that similar experience? They're definitely out there. Um, I'm not that familiar with them. I mean, I know study abroad, volunteerabroad.com. Those are great clearing houses and have a lot of opportunities on there. Um, And I'm sure there's, and those have been around a long time. You know, I think, you know, and that, Transitions Abroad magazine um, was always always been a good resource. I wrote um, for them one one time long ago. Well, I think my first magazine. Yeah, yeah. So exciting. They, yeah, they were always they had these funky, really non obvious um, opportunities in there. Wrote for, yeah. for a few times, uh, and I you know and, and I know there's some more resources out there now that that, that where you can type in a zip code and and your skills and and yeah and look for a match, but that's definitely, that's one way to go. Yeah. When you were in India working with the tea farmers, like 500 miles outside Calcutta, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you mentioned you were basically walking around and collect, one, one of your roles was to collect like verbal autopsies and there was like starvation deaths. Like, had you been around anything like that before? And, and what were your initial thoughts? No, I hadn't. So we were conducting this. It was a malnutrition survey of these, comparing these tea plantations, some of which had remained open, some of which had been closed down. And the plantations were providing social services to all the families who worked there. So when they closed, families were not getting um, food or some emergency things. There were some emergency. I lost you for a little bit. Okay. And is is the... uh, our, our heater keeps going on. Are you hearing that at all? No, I'm not. Nope. It's coming through fine now. Okay, good. Um, so yeah, these, these tea plantations had closed down due to mismanagement and some other things. And, and when they closed down the social services to all the families that worked there, including healthcare and education and, and daycare and food also closed down. So we're doing this malnutrition survey to look at, families in those plantations versus other plantations. And part of it, as you said, was documenting uh, deaths. And it, you can't really, I mean, one thing I learned is you can't, it's really hard to prove a malnutrition re- caused death because malnutrition just weakens your resistance and then you die of pneumonia or something else. Um, but as we were interviewing 120 families, you know, we, a lot of them had stories of people who had recently died and, and we had to record these, um, write down these, these, these stories about how they died. And some of them were children. And yeah, it was, uh, it, it was intense. It was intense. I'd never done anything like that before, but knowing that, that, I mean, talk about the power of story that, that, that otherwise nobody would hear that mm-hmm. of, of what happened. Um, and, and we had the opportunity to do that and talk to them and have translators who sometimes were translating from the tribal Adivashi into Bengali into English uh, just to, to get these, to get these, these little stories Mm. going home to our flat and writing them up at night. Yeah. It just really makes you see like the, yeah, I think it really makes you take a hard look at, at your own life as well. And I know that you write about how like there was this wanting to help that person that was in front of you but also recognizing that you were doing something that could maybe have more of a long-term impact. Um, was that a struggle? Yeah. On that assignment, our job wasn't to provide relief. It was, it was just to gather data and we were going through these areas doing that. So that was, 
yeah, that that sometimes was tough. But the people, their counterparts who are going to be there, are the two uh, work counterparts who worked for this organization out of Calcutta, and they were going to be there after we left, and they were going to pursue this report. Um, so part of it was also establishing context for them um, to be able to come back, and yeah, they they were involved in some organizing and and, and some more immediate help. So. It did feel like it all, you know, was was blending together. Feel good. Yeah. Then that report was published, right? And then uh, wasn't there? Didn't you write a grant or something came out of? Oh, they got funding. Your counterparts got funding, I believe, to stay there and do that work longer. Yeah, yeah. So that that was pretty textbook. I mean, it felt really good that 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 this work had continued um, after we left. I mean, you really started, had you really thought about, uh, you probably had since you were in the Peace Corps, but the, the difference between aid and development, I guess you probably had, but what, you know, how are your thoughts, how, how they progressed today uh, when you're thinking about aid versus development? Uh, it, it's still, you know, like I said, and, you know, when I saw that hurricane hit and we, and we saw the plan shift and the funding shift, um, I, I have a, a better understanding of, of the difference between those two and the need for immediate aid and, and relief at times and, and how complicated, or sometimes you, it's, it's simple to, but to, to fishtail that, dovetail that into, in, into more long-term, you know, so with money and especially when money's pouring in, relief money's pouring in, how can you leverage that money into, you know, Nicaragua was able to get a lot of new roads and highways mm-hmm. um, and out of the, the money that came in. And, and so actually come out of it, um, more advanced and safer. Uh, so yeah, looking at the bridges between the two worlds, um, if I'm looking at assignments or I'm, I'm talking to my you know students now, my Spanish students who, who are going on these short-term mission trips and these short-term volunteering trips. And I'm advising them on, you know, on, on our kind of preparing them, you know, what kind of difference do you think you're going to make? And, and, you know, what's your role going to be in this? And what, how is this organization established? Yeah, it's tough though, right? Because you don't want to make people cynical, right? I mean, because they'll probably go on that trip and it will be uh, change them in some way. And hopefully it leads them to act in some way, whether it's, you know, join AmeriCorps, the Peace Corps, or give more responsibly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you want to encourage, you want them to see the realities of the situations, but you also uh, don't want to, discourage them from necessarily going because you know what can result from a trip like that. Yeah. We used to, I I used to lead these trips in Central America, you know, also for AJWS and they were usually university kids. And, and we, we sometimes took that head on and we'd say, um, you know, Hey, we're, how much money did it cost to fly the 15 of us down here and, and, and have this experience. And yeah, granted we're sleeping on the floor of a health clinic or a school or, a cheap hotel somewhere, but um, in Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, yeah. but looking, really looking at that, like, you know, we spent $35,000 or something. Why didn't we, and, and they're, le- they're letting us help us build this school or this bridge and we're kind of getting in the way. Um, so we have that, that conversation and it's, it's difficult and it's uncomfortable, but you, you come through it and you, you, you find some common ground with it. Once I, I, I made the mistake of having that conversation on, too early in the trip and it did put some people off and it, and it did make them feel um, a, a little bit too, like you said, a little bit too, uh, like what are we doing here? And so it's, it's meant to have, you know, be aimed a little bit toward the end of the week. And, um, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel like with travel is I've, I've had a chance to travel with some student groups before, not in quite that capacity. I took a, a group of overprivileged teenagers uh, to Baja Mexico scuba diving one time, but uh, we didn't have to process stuff like that. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, it's, uh, and I, I've seen how sometimes these experiences, seeing how the rest of the world might not have the privileges and opportunities that we have like weigh on them and they'll want to change in some way as we all do. Like you can't go walk around and record verbal autopsies for three months in India and not be changed by that, right? Like you have to, you have to let it change you to honor that experience. And that's why I hope that the students travel with you and the students I've traveled with before that they 
have these experiences and, and, and they want, they feel this, they want to make this change and live differently. But then so often it's easy to go back into life, into the rut and responsibilities of life yeah. in our homes and just forget about those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, it's piercing that bubble of, of, uh, uh, you know, of, of those, these sheltered areas that, um, that, that these kids are growing up in. So it's, yes, it's from the very most basic, give them that exposure, give them that, give them those images in their mind. And then maybe they'll act on them immediately, or maybe it's, it'll take years or maybe nothing will happen, but there's that value in that. I mean, I, I love that you dedicated the whole section of where am I giving to, to travel and the value of travel and, and acknowledging that there's so many different kinds of travel and, you know, but there is this common denominator, um, that it, that it opens things up. And yeah. I mean, so many of the people I wrote about and where am I giving had traveled outside, you know, most of what I wrote about were local people helping local people. Right. And it was usually that local person leading the change, uh, had left and then they came back and they just saw things differently, which I thought was fascinating. So you, you had all these experiences, you come back, uh, minivan, three daughters, sippy cups. Uh, how, um, you know, how do you maintain this life as a traveler and how, um, uh, how has it shaped how you raise your daughters? And I mean, that's a, uh, that's a huge question. I'll just let you talk. It's uh, it's quite a juxtaposition, um, definitely. Especially when I have some crazy assignment in Nicaragua, and I'm, and I'm down there for two weeks with helicopters and crocodiles and TV crews or something. And I come back and and I get run over by my second grade uh, students or my own kids. Yeah. Um, but it obviously all weaves together, and I'm you know bringing the stories and the and the artifacts back, and my kids are starting to travel with me. I haven't taken them international too much yet but my job in Colorado for the Denver Post is to write a monthly column called around Colorado so my kids grown up with that always every month we have to go somewhere or daddy has to go somewhere but often it's all of us get to experience something and they know that then I have to write a little 500 word story about it and we'll get to go somewhere new next month And, and within Colorado there's no shortage of of places. So I think for them really learning about traveling in your own backyard and exploring that and you know, that we're, that we're, we're always looking for new places and experiences. I'm hoping that that's kind of getting into them, into their blood a little bit. Yeah. You know, once, once I had, uh, once we had our first uh, child Harper, who's 10 now, I remember people telling me, I guess your traveling days are over, you know, and I just kind of feel like that's, I don't know why people say that. It's annoying. But uh, I mean, traveling is kind of a state of mind too, right? Like this like, exploration and this curiosity and uh, actually seeing the world and asking questions. I'm much more likely to ask someone what the population of their city is, uh, even though I might not know the population of the city I actually live in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm traveling, these questions uh, pop up. How do you teach gratitude to your kids? I, I need to know. you have any hacks for that? I, I, I tried and failed this morning when one of them was screaming and crying that when I refused to take that we were going to go out to breakfast and offered her oatmeal and waffles here. And I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't it, it's hard. Those, those direct ones and without saying, Hey, you're lucky you've got any food at all. Like this, that's not going to cut it. Yeah. Out. Um, so I, I think, I, I think it's just gotta be by modeling it um, in, in any possible situation that you can um from the day to day even within our own family to uh if if we're you know i I did for the first time sign our family up to volunteer last thanksgiving and we we went down to um, a shelter in colorado springs and we delivered some meals uh to people who couldn't make it out and so that was the first time we did something you know that explicitly you know service experience with our kids I want to be careful with it. And, but I think that was a good impact. And I think they, they yeah. saw that and they saw people being grateful with that too. So yeah, I think number one modeling it and then, and then trying to, to create experiences where they, they, they can really see it. But I don't think explaining <laughs> is, is going to do the job. 
Yeah, sometimes I feel like such a failure on that front. Our, our kids are pretty good. You know, our kids are pretty good for the most part. But then sometimes you're just like, like you said, breakfast in the morning. Like it's just every morning is like this battle, right? Um, but I, I so appreciate it. You have a new book out, right, uh, about camping in Colorado? I do. Um, 408. Um, Colorado Moon, Colorado Camping, a complete guide to tent and RV camping. It's a list of and description of 480 camps, campgrounds just in Colorado. Um, and wow. Yeah. Researching that with the kids, we, the first time we did it, our youngest was still in diapers and we were tent camping. Um, but we've evolved and now we're out of diapers. Um, and we're, we are getting to try out some RVs and van life here and there and some bigger tents. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of a fun gig to have also. Yeah. I love following your travels, uh, and, and seeing the your different places you got a tent pitched or where you park the, the RV. It's just, I mean, Colorado is obviously an amazing place. Um, it's yeah. awesome to see, see us though. It's incredible. Yeah. And we're actually so close up against the mountains that we don't even see the mountains. So we're like right up in the foothills. So we sometimes forget, you know, we get into our little daily life here but you literally have to drive five miles east to be able to look back and see that oh yeah we're we're sitting at the base of the rocky mountains um but i think we get out enough that we we remind ourselves of that when we can that says something right you live that close to such a remarkable place in our world and you can forget about it now i live in indiana if i drive five miles east west north south i'm in corn yep it's flat so um well uh where can people find you online what's the best place to connect with you my website is joshuaberman.net, um, B-E-R-M-A-N, joshuaberman.net. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Tranquilo Travel. Um, so all one word, Tranquilo Travel. And yeah, I'm, I'm writing about travel and volunteering and teaching Spanish and camping and hiking and exploring our backyard uh, and beyond. So... Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Josh Berman, for coming on. You're definitely good people, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Kelsey. Really good to be here. Appreciate it. So, Jay, that was Josh. What do you think of Josh? Wow. Uh, well, first off, I say that Jay wasn't on that one, which might happen at times. This time, it was all me because Josh is in Colorado, which is mountain time. I don't know if you knew this, Jay. I do know that. <laughs> and for some reason, I was calculating as he was on Pacific time. Right? So, I was off. I was off by an hour. As a person with a job yeah. and not an author, <laughs> okay, it's, hard, it's harder for me to get lined up on my schedule. So, oh yeah, get a get a real job. Thanks, Jay. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, um, I'm, I'm I'm glad he joined uh, the podcast. He, he talked about a number of things. I loved his travel with purpose, um, um, but I think what I really honed in on is just the change he experienced by some of the, 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 the roles he's held and um, what he's done on some of these trips. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is so far out of who I am. It's kind of hard to comprehend yeah. some of the things he's done. Uh, his TED talk is very good. Um, and I'm going to get a couple of these books and he, you know, he has books to talk about travel and he has books that are guidebooks too, yeah. which is an interesting combination of things, but travel with purpose is something that's made me think about where am I going to go yeah. next and what for? Yeah, you know, I had a chance to talk to some Peace Corps volunteers in, in Zambia and some ex-Peace Corps volunteers. I talked about this a little bit in the discussion with Josh, but um, about what kind of impact they can make there. And, you know, I think it's really interesting, to with Josh, when I asked him about that, the, he was there during this time of the Hurricane Mitch. And I didn't mention this in the interview, but the, there's a – in times of the disasters – there's like this community that you bond with your neighbors more like depression goes down, like suicides go down. Uh, I read about this in a book called tribes by, uh, Sebastian Younger, hmm. uh, which I'll, I'll link to that. Cause that's a really fascinating, it's a really short read and real fascinating. Right. Read. He talks about like the bombing in London about how society was much more like peaceful in some ways, like the community among the Londoners as they were being huh. bombed, uh, crime went down, is that like, what Bane was thinking in the third bag? <laughs> maybe, 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 right? Maybe. Yeah, maybe he was the good guy. Yeah, he was like, <laughs> destroy everything. So everyone's like, yes, they're all, we love each other. That's what I always think too about. We're in a uh, uh, the movies like Independence Day, right? When all of a sudden 
the aliens are attacking humanity. Suddenly we stop our own wars and we're like, we're human. Yeah. But anyhow, you know, we just be, need, we just need aliens. Might be a little off That's topic. That we, I think we just named the podcast. <laughs> we, we, need we, we need aliens. But yes, anyway. So there was that. And what was I getting back to? Oh, uh, so I thought that was interesting too about this post hurricane, how he was almost able to, uh, connect with people better they like they didn't question his intentions as much because he had survived this thing right because he was part of it yeah it was like he was one of them because he lived through a a disaster and tragedy with them so i thought that was really interesting instead of showing up on a jet and saying hi i brought bottles of water yeah yeah Yeah. and i also thought it was interesting that he uh one of the ways that i think he feels he made the biggest impact was writing like the first one of the first guidebooks for nicaragua which i used and we talked a little bit about but how that left this legacy of, yeah, you can travel to Nicaragua. You can go and you can take your money and you can support local economies yeah. and travel is a force for good, which I think is a, a something that we'll get into some more uh, in future episodes. But without him writing that, that guidebook, would I have traveled to the places I traveled in Nicaragua and spent the money that I spent in Nicaragua? And I'm guessing that made a pretty significant impact. So the, what is the impact when you leave? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, he made an impact through the Peace Corps, but then, you know, his interaction in the Peace Corps kind of inspired him to write this guidebook that who knows how many more people that inspired to go to Nicaragua right. who were then inspired to give in some other way. Right. right. So who knows the impact that right. Josh had in Nicaragua. Yeah. So that stuck with me. Also the terms, um, this is from his book, Crocodile Love, Verbal Autopsy. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about complacency disturbing, which I'll use those words a lot because many of people like me are complacent in so many ways. Um, that story and the role he filled there is, is crushing. Mm. It would have been difficult to live through. And like recording starvation deaths, yeah. right? Like, I mean, how do you do that? And yeah. How can you, how can you ever be like the same person? Yeah. And talking to the family and hearing from the survivors and knowing what, what, how they feel. Yeah. So you're going to sign up for the Peace Corps? Uh, I think I'm too old. No, you're not. I can still go. You still can go. There's there's my retirement. I think the Peace Corps is largely people in like their uh, mid to late, probably mid twenties and mid Mm thirties. And then like older people who look like retired. Yeah. I need to do something. older people like you jay yes that's me <laughs> well my best friend in the world other than you kelsey um did did that going out of college and he lived in Cameroon, in africa and um, he would send me audio files of, of what he was experiencing oh, wow. and, um, like he would like record a diary of, yeah like, he had a little digital wow. recorder way back then and um, he would go to an internet cafe when the internet was new, awesome. send me uh, send me files and his stories were moving and life-changing but as we said in the last podcast, he was involved in water. Mm. Um, so I got to hear the challenges of getting those wells dug and village habits. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole like, kind of legacy of Peace Corps writers as well. And I, I wonder if the biggest impact that the Peace Corps has made is not in those two years, but like Josh. Could be. What do you do after? Yeah. Right? And what's your friend do now? Uh, he's an environmental engineer. Yeah. So he's in, uh, responsibly working on wind and air power or wind and uh, solar power for the United States and for Germany both. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I think the thing about the Peace Corps that's so powerful when he talks about this is just the fact that you're in with the individuals and you know the families. And uh, You know, my friend Scott lived within the villages. He'd live in a village for six months. He'd live in another village for six months. He wasn't in a hotel coming out to the village. He was there, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So he experienced the people and met the individuals and families and, and that changed his life. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I hope that happens to anyone that travels outside of their bubble. Right. Or surely anyone's in the Peace Corps it has Travel. to be a life changing experience. Yeah. Peace Corps is the best example of traveling with purpose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I love talking with Josh. If you want to learn more about Josh, uh, you can go to Kelsey Timmerman, Timmerman.com. Sometimes I can't say my own name. Yeah. Slash good people. That's kind of where we'll keep the show notes. Uh, We'd love if you would subscribe, rate, and share uh, the podcast. And thank you so much uh, for listening. It's been a real gift to me and Jay. Jay and I. Jay and me. You're good people. Jay Jay came up with that tagline. Jay (laughs) also came up with something 
that I thought was really important. He sent me a couple of days ago. Um, oh, where, where can I find it, Jay? Do you remember what the quote was? Good people bring out the good in people. Yeah. And that's why I really hope that this does. But I really hope by meeting these individuals or hearing from these individuals that have been focused on these type of issues that it all makes us a little bit better. Yeah. yeah. So, anyhow, thanks for, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffritchyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.